Today we're going to begin a new series. I'm calling it a mini-series because it's going to be a fairly short series called Dealing with Chaos, Help from the Psalms. What comes to your mind when you hear that word chaos? Maybe you think about moving or you just moved and there's boxes all over the place or uh, maybe that's what your, your house looks like or what your yard looks like or, or have you ever gone fishing? And you get out on the lake or whatever, and it's kind of, I've done this before, so I'm what I'm describing. And uh, it's early in the morning, it's still kind of dark, and you cast carelessly, and you, what you end up with is a ball of fishing line about that big that has about 10,000 knots in it. That's chaos. Unfortunately for me, when I hear the word chaos, I think about the 1960s TV comedy series called Get Smart. You know, Agent 86 and Agent 99, they work for Control, the good, the good organization, uh, uh, inept but good organization. And then there was the evil Cold War uh, Russian organization called Chaos. And so Chaos is bad. Chaos speaks of complete disorder and confusion. Disorder, disarray, disorganization, confusion, mayhem, bedlam, pandemonium, havoc, turmoil, all bad names. When you think of this, uh, this idea of chaos, we encounter different kinds of chaos, chaos in our lives. Some chaos is, is of our own making. We brought it on ourselves. Other chaos we endure just because of what other people uh, have done. We're going to start today with what I think is the worst kind, calling this morning the chaos we create for ourselves what to do when you've blown it because sometimes in life you know we just do some stuff and we think ah how can I survive that you know how can I survive what I have just done and responsible for as Todd mentioned then next week we'll celebrate Mother's Day kind of the same theme uh, I think chaos is the perfect subject for what most mothers have to endure uh, in their lives and by the way we'll do the flower thing next week and we have a gift for each mom present so be sure your mom is here and then we'll conclude by talking about the chaos that we endure, that we just sometimes find ourselves in a couple weeks from now. After that is Memorial Day. We take up that special offering. Todd mentioned special, super-duper service coming up on Memorial Day. But for today, that's what's happening for the month. Today we're going to just work our way toward Psalm 51 as we discuss the chaos that we create in our own lives for ourselves and what do you do about it when that happens? I've, been, I've talked some here recently about uh, David, this king of Israel, the shepherd, the warrior who killed the, Goli the, the Philistine giant Goliath who was nine and a half feet tall. That might seem like a fairy tale, by the way, but there have been skeletons of men that tall found from that period of time. But nine and a half feet tall, that is gigantic. Anyway, it's hard to imagine somebody, not only would they have to duck down to get through the door, they couldn't even stand up in the average room that has an eight-foot ceiling uh, in it. But that's this guy here, the musician, author of many songs, including The Lord is My Shepherd, I Shall Not Want, He Makes Me to Lie Down in Green Pastures, He Leads Me Beside the Still Waters, and so on and so forth. And God calls David a man after his own heart. So that's the guy we're talking about here, this great guy, great warrior, great king, uh, everything about him seems to be good. And after years of fighting, and he was a great warrior, 
Uh, David established himself as king over all Israel, but he still had some enemies to fight. Now, I'm just going to sort of summarize what we find in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, uh, good chapters to read later on uh, as we work up to uh, Psalm 51. But 2 Samuel chapter 11 begins in the springtime of the year when kings go out to war. Uh, that means after the winter rains had ended because the ancient armies couldn't fight in bad weather uh, and, and before the fall planting and harvesting season because the soldiers need to come back home you know, to take care of their families, this is when generally the wars, the battles took place. And so in that particular year, uh, the Israelites had been battling with the Ammonites and David sent his troops out to finish off the war that had started early, but he stayed behind uh, in the capital city, take care of some other business. I don't know why he didn't go. But one evening, he, it was hot. He got up on the roof of his house, and everybody had a roof they could walk around on, kept trying to catch a cool breeze coming through the city, and he spotted a beautiful woman. Her name was Bathsheba. Now, this is an important woman. Let me say, show you something about her family tree here. Her, her father's in the middle there is a guy by the name of Eliam. Eliam is one of David's mighty men. He was probably off at war at this time, but he was one of the inner circle of elite troops. Her grandfather, Ahithophel, up at the top there, was David's trusted advisor. You know, that he still was David's right-hand guy uh, helping him make decisions. And her husband... There's Bathsheba down near the bottom on the right-hand side, but her husband was a guy by the name of Uriah called Uriah the Hittite. He was also one of David's group called the 30. This, let me just talk to you about that a little bit. David's greatest warriors included three very elite guys who had done some fantastic things on the battlefield and a couple of more guys that were just under them. And then there was the 30 a special contingent of elite troops who fought beside David who were his bodyguards. And Bathsheba's husband was a part of that group. And Bathsheba's, fa Bathsheba's father was a part of that group. And Bathsheba's grandfather was uh, David's right-hand man, his advisor. And their house was close to the king's house. It was the best neighborhood uh, in, in all of Jerusalem to live in, of course, the, the neighborhood where they lived. So Bathsheba was a member of a very influential family who lived near the king. And David probably knew exactly who Bathsheba was. And he's walking around on his roof and he says to his advisor, who's that woman? And they said, well, you know who she is. That's Bathsheba, wife of Uriah, and so on and so forth. But anyway, he sent for her. He committed adultery with her and she became pregnant. So what's he going to do now? Army's off fighting, and he's committed a sin. How's he going to handle it? What would you do? He decided to cover it up. And so he sent for her husband, Uriah, to come home from the battlefield under the guise of reporting on the progress that was taking place. And after the report was over with, he said, well, look, before you go back, why don't you go spend the night with your wife, and then you can go on back, because he figured then nobody would know whose child was about to be born. But Uriah didn't do that. He said, no, I won't go uh, spend the night with my wife because my brothers in arms are out fighting and God's uh, ark is out there. That's where I should be. 
and I will not do anything that takes away from that. And David said, oh, man, this guy, he's so loyal. So he said, well, stay around one more day. So he had, took, stayed in Jerusalem one more day, and David invited him over for dinner, and David got him drunk and said, go home to your wife tonight. Still didn't do it. In a drunken stupor, the guy still had such honor about him. He was so loyal to David and so loyal to God and so loyal to Egypt that he slept at the king's doorstep with the servants of the king. So the third day, David said, what am I going to do now? So he wrote a note, gave it to Uriah, said, take this back to Joab, the general of the army. And what it was, was it was Uriah's death notice. Instructions in the note said, put Uriah out front of the troops in the hottest part of the battle, withdraw from him so that he gets killed. And that's what happened. David had his trusted uh, friend and this guy that was so loyal to him had him murdered in battle. And after a proper period of mourning on behalf of his wife, he called for her and he married Bathsheba and the child was born and everything seemed to be okay. Except 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27 has this little statement, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Nobody else knew exactly what was going on, but God knew what had happened and it displeased the Lord. In fact, God was really displeased with it in another a book of the Old Testament, the book of First uh, Kings chapter 15, in verse 5, it says, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except, except the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Uh, David was this guy who did all kinds of good stuff and followed God and didn't worship idols and anything, but man, did he mess up this one particular time. Still, David seemed to have gotten away with it until one day there was a knock on the door and God's, the local prophet showed up. His name was Nathan. And David knew who Nathan was. Nathan came in and told David a famous story, famous to us. David had never heard it before. A story about two men, a rich guy and a poor guy. And he said there was this rich guy and he had everything he wanted. He had all kinds of goats and all kinds of sheep and all kinds of cattle and all kinds of flocks and had all kinds of money and and next to, near him lived a poor guy. And this guy had one lamb, one little female lamb that he raised like his daughter. And she ate from his table and, you know, family pet. And one day, the rich guy had some people come by to visit with him. But he didn't want to kill one of his animals to feed his company. So he went and killed the, the lamb that was raised as a pet in this other household and served her as a meal uh, for his for his company. And David was enraged that anybody would do something as vile and low and evil as that. So 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5 says this, so David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing shall surely die. And not only that, verse 6, he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So he's going to, if you steal something, you have to pay back four times as much. That was the law. But he said the guy's going to die for it too. And of course, the famous verse, verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you're the guy. You're the man. 
You're the one that did this thing that enrages you, that you want somebody to die for, except it wasn't a lamb. God gave you everything. You're the king. You can do anything you want. And you stole your neighbor's wife. Not only was your neighbor's wife, this guy that loved you and, and served you and, and would risk his life for you. Well, one thing about David, he really knew how to confess his sins. And he meant it. So David fully confessed and repented of his sins and God allowed him to live. However, there were consequences and God set some events in motion that would trouble David until the day he died. You know, I, I read stuff like this in scripture and I hate it. I hate these stories. Detest having to read these stories. Every time I read them, they turn out the same way. I like watching a movie. You know, it's all, the tragedy still comes. It seems so wasteful. Why do great, good, intelligent people have to make the same stupid mistakes, such terrible choices? Why do they have to sin against God like this and bring tragedy uh, into their lives? And why does God feel the need to tell us about it in such detail? I think we all know the answer to that. God reveals this terrible incident in David's life because we kind of do the same sorts of things, not exactly the same sins necessarily. Hopefully you haven't premeditated somebody's death, uh, your, your best friend, but, uh, but, but we make that bad decisions, don't we? And, and we commit similar sins most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time the chaos in our lives is a result of, of our sins and poor decisions. I'm not saying that every time something bad happens, it's because I've done something wrong. I don't believe that at all. Uh, we live in a broken world, and no matter how well you live, there's still things that happen in this world. But most of the time, a lot of the time, we can trace the chaos in our lives back to ourselves, which is what we're talking about today. We'll take care of the other side of it in a couple of weeks. And we've established the fact that David, the guy that did this, is so horrible it's, it's, it's almost unimaginable, isn't it, that somebody would be so low as to do these kinds of things. We've established that he was a musician, a poet, and a songwriter. And poetry tends to get to the heart of a matter. It tends to bring the very, every emotion involved seems to come out in poetry. So during this period of time, David wrote what is recorded in the book of the Psalms in the Old Testament, Psalm number 51 containing some of the most personal and poignant words in Scripture. And today we're going to take a look at some of these words, not all of them, some of them, as we consider how to correct self-inflicted chaos, you know, stuff that we bring on ourselves. And, and so we're going to read a portion of the Psalm 51, then I'm going to give you three steps to dealing with chaos. I want you to notice how personal this is, and, and I want you to notice how David accepted total responsibility he didn't say, well, Bathsheba, well, Joab, well, Uriah. He didn't do any of that. He said, it's all on me. He could have blamed others. Psalm 51, verse 1. Now, there's a title on this psalm. A lot of titles, you know, if, you, if you have a Bible and you open it up, the, the chapter numbers and the titles and so forth were added way later. But in the Psalms, the titles were put on there generally by the people who wrote them. So this, this, this title comes down from the beginning to the choir master, the head, the head music guy. A Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So it identifies when David wrote this song. Verse one, 
David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. David's love waned for his guy there that he had murdered. But God's love is always the same. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Clean me up, verse, verse two. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. David uses a lot of different words for sin. He's a poet, right? And he's writing a song, bringing it out. Verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David said, I can't get it out of my mind. So I think about it all the time. When I close my eyes at night, there it is, haunting me. When I open my eyes in the morning, I can't enjoy the beautiful sunrise or the kids playing in the street. All the time it's there. Always before me. Verse four. This is really interesting. He says to God, against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. How about Uriah? It's kind of against him, right? <laughs> How about Bathsheba? It's kind of against her. But what he's bringing out here is that every sin is against God. God is the number one person offended and number one person hurt when we do the wrong thing. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. All sin is against God. And we know that we're wrong. We know that. And God has the right to judge us. Now, I may not have the right to judge you. I don't. But God has the right to judge all of us. Verse 5, David is still talking. <clears throat> he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was born a sinful person, and in sin did my mother conceive me. His mom and dad were married and all that kind of stuff. What he's saying is that it's just a statement of the fact that, that we all start off life imperfect. We're born sinners, and we can't correct that on our own. It took God through Jesus Christ doing that for us. Verse 6, behold, you delight in the truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Verse seven, purge me with hyssop. Now, by the way, hyssop is a plant. This sort of comes from the Jewish ceremonial cleansing. Hyssop was a plant that would be dipped in blood and sprinkled uh, as part of ceremonial cleansing. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse eight, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. When chaos overcomes our life, we lose all joy. Everything seems bad. And we lose all optimism. And, and he's praying for that to return. Verse 9, hide your face from my sin. Blot out all my iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. Clean me up in, in a way that soap and water won't. Clean, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 12, this is the last verse we're going to read here. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Salvation, being right with God, bring the greatest joy that any person can have, possibly have on this earth. And yet we drift from God we lose the joy that comes with that salvation. Now, I said, I, we, took, we can see the, the emotion, the personal guilt, the expressions of David here. And from that, I want us to take three steps. 
to correct self-inflicted chaos. Not going to take long, just want to tell you about these. First one is this. Confront the cause of your chaos. When there's chaos in your life, what's the cause of that? Ask what created this mess that I'm in. And ask this question too. What have I done to contribute to it? What's my part? Because, you know, whether it's mostly mine or not mostly mine, there's generally a part that I played in this. What have I done to contribute to this mess right here? The temptation all too often is to place blame elsewhere. Have you noticed that we like to take credit for our accomplishments, but we blame our failures on others and on circumstances? I lost my temper. I was, but I was really tired. Or you provoked me. If you just kept your mouth shut, I wouldn't have done that. Not my fault I committed sexual sin. She tempted me. Not my fault I got fired for insubordination. My boss is an idiot. Refusing to acknowledge your role in the chaos only assures that the chaos is going to continue because nothing ever changes. You know, we keep doing the same thing over and over again and we keep getting the same results over and over again. So, if you're in the middle of a mess, you need to ask yourself, what role did I play in this? doesn't mean you're 100% responsible. Just, let's not care about other people. Let's just care, what role did I play in this? If the chaos is caused by your sinful disobedience, then you need to acknowledge it like David did. Might not have been a big, big one like his, but acknowledge it, confess it, repent, change your mind, change your heart, change your actions. That's what David did. Let me read one more time the first four verses of that psalm. Psalm 51 verse one says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse three, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. It's always right there against you, verse four, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Confront the cause and say, what part did I play in this? Just a little story. Years, years ago, Gene and I rented a car. Going to take a little trip. Going to a meeting. We made it as far as Tallahassee. Had to eat lunch at Cracker Barrel, so we pulled off there. Went in, came out of the restaurant, feeling good, ready to continue our trip. Somebody had knocked the window out of the car and Jean had left her purse on the front seat of the car in plain sight, and it was gone. Everything else was there, but the purse was missing. As I stood there calling the police and the rental car company and canceling credit cards and debit cards, I could have blamed the society or the police department or what's going on here, the city of Tallahassee's in such bad shape, or I could have blamed Jean. She left her purse on the front, front seat. But I had to admit that, hey, I... I saw the purse there too. And we did nothing about it. We have a part to play. That was a chaotic little situation. And we all played a part and had to admit what our part was. So confront the cause. What part did I play in this anyway? Helps us be a little nicer to the people around us. Number two is correct your course. Do some stuff differently. Ask these questions. What could I have done differently? Take that purse in, right? And secondly, what should I do now? What could I do differently? What should I do now? We don't leave Jean's uh, purse 
in the truck when we go in anywhere. Every once in a while, she'll say, do you think it's okay if I just, no, 15 years ago, no, no. We're never leaving that purse in this vehicle ever again, so long as we both shall live. Uh, you know, because I don't want to do, I don't want to go through that again. When David walked on the roof and saw Bathsheba, well, by the way, a lot of people think he shouldn't even have been up there walking around on the roof. He should have been out with the army fighting. God would have protected him out there and he wouldn't have gotten in trouble at home. But when David walked out on his roof and saw Bathsheba, he should have looked the other way. You can do that, you know. It's possible. You don't have to look at stuff you're not supposed to look at. He knew what was going to happen. He knew who she was. He knew who her daddy was. He knew who her grandfather was. He knew all that stuff. He's not stupid. She's his neighbor. His guys are, you know, around him all the time. I want you to think about this. If you want to minimize the chaos in your life, then develop a strategy in advance for dealing with temptation. You have certain things that you know uh, give you a hard time. Decide how, how am I going to handle this before, decide before it comes up. You know, when a good football team faces fourth and one, the coach has a plan for what's going to happen in that particular uh, situation. He doesn't say, well, what are we going to do now? Now he's got a plan. He looks at his chart. He's got three or four plays that he would usually run in that situation. If your past behavior keeps creating chaos in your life, then it's time to correct your course. Do something different. Ask yourself, what could I have done differently the last time, and what should I be doing differently this time? I'll give another example from Gene and me. We've had plenty of chaos in our life. I've been a pastor most of my life. And with the churches I've pastored, no church has ever deducted taxes from my paycheck. I have to do that on my own. I'm considered self-employed uh, by the federal government. And so what happened is that for years, I didn't do that. Come to the end of the year, tax time, chaos. I had to sell a pickup truck one time, pay the taxes. Gene had an antique doll collection. I had to sell that one time to pay the taxes. I had to cash in a, a life insurance policy one time to pay the taxes, pain, chaos every year. I just kept doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. Same, what, how stupid is that anyway? I knew what the, what the solution was. Every week, you have to take a portion of your paycheck and put it aside before you do anything else. But I thought, well, I wasn't making enough money to do that. Each week, that's what I started doing. I knew the solution, I finally started doing it. Each week, I take a par portion of our paycheck I put it in a special account uh, at the credit union, and Uncle Sam, IRS, whatever you want to call him, reaches into that account four times a year and pulls out the, the, the amount of money that I tell him to do that. First, I give God's part, and I don't mess with that. Then I give Uncle Sam's part, I don't mess with that, and then we live on the rest. Confront the cause of your chaos and correct your course. Come up with a plan. What am I going to do so that I don't have this chaos in my life anymore? And one more thing. The third thing is this. Create accountability. King David was held accountable by this prophet named Nathan who came by. That was the one thing he did right in this whole situation. He listened to this prophet who held him accountable. He didn't kick the guy out. He didn't say, string this guy up, stone this guy to death. He listened to what the guy had to say. So I say to you, find someone who is willing and able to hold you accountable and allow that person to do that. 
Find an accountability partner. Three things to look for in an accountability partner. Not going to take long with this. Number one is find a person of integrity. Choose a person who has his or her life in order, spiritually, morally, financially, or whatever. That person is much more likely to give you good counsel than somebody who's messed up like you are in that particular kind of a situation. The Bible says this in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any kind of a transgression, any kind of a problem, any chaotic situation, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So get that kind of a person, a spiritual person, a, a, a mature person, a person of integrity. So three things. Number one, a person of integrity. Number two, choose a person who is committed to you. Choose a person who cares about, enough about you and your happiness and your holiness that they're willing to tell you the hard things, that they're willing to come up to you and say, you may not like this right now, and this may not be fun right now, but if you'll do the right thing, you're going to be thankful for it later. So a person who's committed to you. And thirdly, choose a person who is equally accountable to you. Accountability is a reciprocal relationship. This accountability is far more than somebody that yells, hey, stupid, quit doing that. It's a two-way street. It's a person who comes to you and says, let's walk this through this thing together. Let's get God's wisdom on this matter. Put God's principles into practice. Let's get back on track together without, uh, get away from this constant turmoil. That's what we need to do. Find that person and create accountability. Final thing, chaos. We don't need it, right? Excitement, okay. Change, okay. Vacation, okay. Chaos, nobody wants that. So let's confront the cause. What did I have to do with it? Correct our course. How can I do differently and create accountability? I'm going to find somebody that will help me with it. It can be better. For all of us, it can be better. But we, we need a little help. None of us can do it by ourselves. Everybody, every one of us needs somebody who loves us, who's mature, who will put his arm around us or put her arm around us and say, let's do this together. We're going to be better off. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I know that you're here. I know that we, we all mess up in big ways or little ways in our lives. And sometimes even if it's a small thing, we say, how can I survive this? But you have a way, and you love us, and you never throw us out, and you didn't throw David away, but you continue to use him. Please grant us your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.